0: In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 254 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, what the best leaders do differently, an interview with Scott Miller. We're approached all the time to interview other thought leaders on this podcast. Of course, since No Bullshit Leadership is predominantly a solo cast, we reluctantly decline 99% of these requests. But one popped into our inbox a few months ago, and we simply couldn't resist it. Scott Jeffrey Miller is a speaker, author, and podcaster. I know, sounds familiar. (laughs) But what's different about Scott is that he's worked for over 25 years with Franklin Covey, the legendary company founded by Stephen Covey. If you're not familiar with that name, Stephen Covey wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which you've either read or you'll know is a modern-day classic. But Franklin Covey also has two other works to draw from that are incredibly useful, The Speed of Trust and The Four Disciplines of Execution, which is one of my all-time favourites. Now, Scott has worked with these original thought leaders for decades, and as host of Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast, he's had access to some of the best-known and highest-profile leaders on the planet. In today's interview, I drill into Scott's deep learning, asking him what it's like to interview the biggest names in business, his experience of writing best selling books, and of course, what's in store for the future of leadership. So, let's get into it. Scott Miller, welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. It's fantastic to have you with us, mate.
1: Marty, thank you for the spotlight and the platform today.
0: Yeah, no worries, mate. It's a pleasure. Now, in the introduction, I spoke about your on leadership podcast, and when I was researching it, I was surprised to see how similar our two podcasts actually are, although yours is obviously predominantly an interview podcast. But we both started around the same time in two thousand and eighteen. we've released an almost identical number of episodes, and when I look at the stats on listen notes, we have an identical listen notes score, both in the top half percent of leadership podcasts or of all global podcasts in in actual fact now the difference with you is that you've interviewed some really impressive guests. And without name dropping on your behalf, I think it's important for context to share some of the people who've helped to shape your views in the last five years or so. So you've interviewed the household names like Deepak Chopra and Ariana Huffington, Matthew McConaughey, uh, John Maxwell, one of my very early leadership influences. But you've also been able to interview these original thought leaders like Daniel Goleman, who obviously brought emotional intelligence into the mainstream, and uh, James Clear, who's been number one on the Wall Street Journal list for 100 years, um, you know, Dan Pink, uh, Kim Scott, radical candour, and my favourite, Mark Manson, the subtle art of not giving an F. So um, I, I guess with all these luminaries that have, you've had on the podcast, is there a common theme or thread that you see coming through consistently? From these people that you're interviewing
1: oh i love this question i do several and sometimes i've mentioned this and the podcast host hasn't been happy with my answer so i'll get ready to fight you on it go a for a couple it. of things a couple of things one is uh an indefatigable work ethic you look at people like john maxwell and yeah. rachel hollis and jack canfield i mean these people work insanely hard it doesn't mean they're workaholics it means that their, their, their avocation and their vocation are similar. They live balanced lives, I believe, but they just, they have a level of responsibility they feel to invest and to teach and to listen and to keep going. So one is, I don't know that they're that much smarter than you and I, or me, maybe not, but I do think they outwork most people. So I think yeah. there's some insight to be shared that hard work is still a competitive advantage. Absolutely. Secondly, They have an abundance mentality. There's not a scarce bone in their body. They usually feel compelled to share and to pollinate ideas and make connections and things. So that's the second commonality is they have an abundance mentality versus a scarcity mentality. And third, I think, generally, they have this beautiful balance of courage and vulnerability, which both are leadership competencies. They're very comfortable sharing which book flopped or which course didn't work or which keynote, what imploded. They're confident enough to share with you what went wrong as well as what went right. And that probably culminates in this similarity. There's no such thing as overnight success. Every one of these people had years of writing books you know nothing about and their sixth book took off, right? Or they toiled in the leadership space for a decade before they really got traction. No such thing as overnight success. When there is, it's usually ill-gotten or fleeting. But what almost all of them have in common is you'd be shocked to see how long they worked before they became quote an overnight success.
0: Mm, For sure, that's a really good insight. Thanks so much for that. And and amongst all of those thought leaders, which was the most daunting interview that you ever had to prepare for, and why?
1: Well, you know, I I don't know that there was a daunting one. I you know I've spent my entire career with Stephen Covey and at the Franklin Covey Company, so I've been around. Thought leaders and influencers and celebrities. I'm a talent agent. That's what my my business is. I'm actually a literary speaking and talent agent here in the U.S. So uh, I think Doris Kearns Goodwin was kind of daunting. You know, she's this you know Pulitzer Prize winning presidential scholar. It was more of an honor to be in her presence than perhaps it was daunting. You know, I've interviewed right. some people that I've had some amazing, ama- a major tragedies in life you know elizabeth smart the kidnapping victim and now the you know the the uh victim rights advocate i interviewed a gentleman from pakistan who survived a commercial airline crash oh wow 98 people died and two survived and he was one of them wow so it's it's the people that to use your term the most daunting it's usually not the celebrities or the business titans or best-selling authors it's usually the people that have done something remarkable, usually having survived a tragedy or trauma and have summoned the courage to talk about it and teach through it. That's the ones that I think I, 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 I um, to quote you, would find the most daunting.
0: Right, okay. That's so interesting. If there's one person that you'd love to interview but you haven't yet had the opportunity, who would that be and why?
1: So there's a Hollywood producer named Brian Grazier. He's part of Ron Howard's Imagine Entertainment. I, I'm not a big movie watcher. I've probably watched eight movies in my entire life. i probably read 4,000 books. I'm a reader, not a watcher. Um, and I'm not sure I've watched any movies, but he wrote a book called, um, I think it was called A Curious Mind, or that was the name of the movie. Uh, anyway, he wrote a book about curiosity. And I'm, and I'm sort of obsessed with the relevance between curiosity and professional growth and maturity and insatiable learning and leadership. And so I've been chasing Brian Grasher for like three years and and I'll I'll message him personally. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll come on. And then his agent will shut it down. I'll message him again like a year later. I'm happy to come on. And then his assistant will shut it down. So I'm telling you, Brian, I'm coming for you, brother. If Matthew McConaughey and Deepak Chopra and Brene Brown and Tony Robbins, if they'll come on and Jay Shetty and everybody else you're coming on my program, bro.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, he's on notice now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so so given that today is the release of your new book, The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship, yeah. which we're going to get to a little bit later, Thank I just you. want to drill a little bit into the writing process because you've published a number of books and writing books is difficult and time consuming and the outcomes can be incredibly unpredictable. So uh, according to BookScan, which is probably the most reliable source of publishing information, Only 5% of traditionally published books sell more than 5,000 copies. And if you expand that to include self-published works as well, you're probably looking at, you know, less than 2% of all books published sell 5,000. And they say the average book sells about 200 copies. So it's a lot of work for not a lot of movement. Now that you've written several best-selling books and, of course, publishing the latest work today, what attracts you to writing? And why do you keep coming back for more?
1: Well When you pose it that way, I don't know. I'm now second-guessing it all. I know your stats are right, and now they're horrifying when I hear it.
0: I know, but you know this, Scott. You know this.
1: I do. I'm a literary agent. I, um, you know, I didn't set out to be a writer. I spent 25 years in the Franklin Covey Company as the chief marketing officer, as the executive vice president of thought leadership, my job was to make other people rich and famous through authorship. So I was the equivalent of being the producer and director, not the star, right? Not the actor. But about three years ago, actually, it was four years ago, almost four years ago this week, I wrote my first book and it was called Management Mess to Leadership Success. It did quite well. It sold about a hundred thousand copies between all different retailers and wholesalers and things like that. It's done quite well. And the reason I wrote it was because I wanted to write a really raw leadership book. There's so many leadership books that um, glorify leadership, talk about how easy it is and lovely and it's so noble. And leadership is tough. It is hard to do. It's unrelenting, it's unrewarding. And I'm like, "No, not everyone should be a leader. Stop saying that, people. Not everyone should be an <laughs> anesthesiologist, and not everyone should be a commercial airline pilot, and not everyone should be a leader." Right. I mean, look at this masterpiece. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's phenomenal. no bullshit leadership. It's tough. So I wanted to tell my story. Not all leaders look the same. They don't have button down ties. And they don't say the right things all the time. And it, it's tough. It's tough.
0: Yeah. So yes. I got
1: my role. I kind of found my voice. Some publishers believed in me. People started booking podcasts and my second book became a wall street journal bestseller. But my third book, The one in green behind me, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Let me confess to you. This was like my biggest book. I was the chief marketing officer of a global leadership company. This book is going to be phenomenal. I spent $45,000 launching this book. I had Facebook launch groups. I had a book tour. I come home the first week after the book launches. The book sold 67 copies. No, I like, spent forty thousand dollars selling a book. I mean, I could have bought six thousand copies for forty five thousand dollars, and like just pretended they'd sold. The book sold sixty seven copies, and I posted it on Facebook. My boys and I like unveiled the 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 you know the the data from at the time NPD. Now it's called Circana. But I, I talked about it. I said, because some books flourish and some books flop, and you just got to keep going and keep going and find your niche. And, and I think my best book is the current one out today, The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. I tend to write really practical books. You know, As you know, most publishers will tell you the author should write for the reader. I don't do that. I write for myself. I write books that I think I would find helpful and interesting, and I just try to attract people that find my voice credible. Sometimes they hit, sometimes they miss.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um and and your uh management mess book saying it sold hundred thousand copies, it was reasonably successful, that is stellar. Now, not quite as stellar as the uh I guess the linchpin of the Franklin Covey organization, which was the original Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That was first published in nineteen eighty nine and that sold, I don't know, what, approaching 60 fifty million, million copies? Almost sixty million, million. copies. Yeah, like, unbelievable, right? But Fifteen years after that was released, Covey released a much lesser known book called The Eighth Habit. Now, of course, habit, habit number eight is find your voice and inspire others to find theirs. So I find this curious. Do you ever look back on your books after they've been written and published and think, I wish I'd included that concept?
1: Concept meaning building on the previous book?
0: Yeah, or, or something that you left out, or you didn't express oh, the same way, or no. you evolved later and thought, actually, I haven't explained that well, or I wish I'd said that differently, or I, well. I wish I'd emphasized this point as opposed to that point.
1: Marty, here's what I will say. Um, I'm in a unique cat. I don't have regret. I, I, don't, I don't experience the emotion of regret. I don't experience the emotion of embarrassment. I am kind of a unique cat. Maybe I'm a narcissist. I don't hope so, but all of it, I, that. <laughs> I, I once interviewed a famous neuroscientist on the podcast, Dr. Daniel Amen. I've actually been on four times and he said something profound. Now he's like a world renowned neuroscientist board certified psychiatrist and brain imaging expert. And he said something profound. He said, everybody's out for themselves. Some of it just are. Some of us are just better at disguising it than others. So I think it's a great point. To your question, I don't look back at a book and say I wish I'd would um included this. But I did recently read a book I wrote two years ago, and I thought, oh my gosh, that book would have been so much better had I written it now versus two years ago. Because as you know, it takes you know about a year to write a book, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes ten years, and it takes about a year and a half to you know, copy edit and source and, 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 publish a book. So I do look back and think, Oh, that was bad. Or, Oh my gosh, I didn't tell that story. Right. But I don't have any regret because it was, it was my maturity at right. the time. It was my insight at sure. the time. Yeah. Sure. These are awesome questions from an author. I love this conversation.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I'm fascinated by the writing process. I've, I've, I've got a grand total of one book in the market. Congratulations. So, so, so when the scars heal, I'll get to number two, don't you worry. Um, just talking about your own brand uh, personally, it, it's absolutely rooted in authenticity and pragmatism. So do you have a view on the direction that the leadership discourse seems to have taken in the recent years? I mean, you've mentioned in the introduction the um, aversion you have to everyone should be a leader and it's easy and we're all going to be noble and you know have all these virtues. But this almost exclusive focus on desirable leadership attributes rather than the sound leadership principles that Franklin Covey espouses and, of course, seem to be very deeply personal to you. Do you have a sort of like a a view on that?
1: Well, here's how I would answer that is I think leadership has changed fundamentally post-pandemic. What hasn't changed, right? Maybe that's a cliche. But I do believe a million people in America died during the pandemic. And you know, a, a multiple of that massively around the world. It was a it was a lifetime sweeping change for everyone and their values. I don't know someone that's not different post-pandemic in terms of how they manage their time, how they value their family, how they tolerate a jerk boss, how they up and quit because they can't stand one mm-hmm. more day. And you ask them, where are you going? They say, I don't know. You're yeah. like, no, really, where are you going? No, I don't know. No, you can tell me it's okay. I don't know. I might open an Etsy store. I might, you know, tape something for Udemy. I don't know, but I don't wanna work here anymore because my life is too short and too precious. So on the heels of that, which is not an epiphany, I think people have spent more time identifying their values and connecting to them and realizing that they don't want their, work, their life to be work. That's an Americanism, right? I mean, I'm headed to central mm-hmm. pay on Monday for vacation. Europeans kind of have it right. They don't live to work. They work to live. And I think I'm a capitalist. (laughs) True and true. But as I've come out of the pandemic, I've realized this is my one precious life and I don't want to waste it. Here's how I'm connecting it to leadership. I think that leadership is exponentially harder post-pandemic. Not because of the hybrid scenario, but yes, because of that. Not because of the war on talent, but yes, also because of that. Because... People need individualized leadership now. It used to be, Marty, you and I are about the same age, I'm going to guess. It used to be back in the 80s and 90s, even 2000s, we had a default leadership style. And most of our team members had to sort of adapt to that. We had positional power. We had utility power. We had coercive power. And hopefully we had some principle-centered power. But it used to be that, you know, if you were a strong, charismatic leader, everybody kind of had to cleave to your style. Hopefully it was an ethical style, but that's changed. Now I've got to make sure that as a leader, that I have a multitude of styles, that I communicate to Marty how he needs to be communicated to. With frequency, with checking in versus checking on, with the kind of reinforcing or redirecting feedback that works for Marty. And that is going to be different for Elise and a different for Troy. And so I do think leadership is exponentially harder now. If you wanna be the kind of leader that recruits and retains talent, you need to govern your values by principles, but your technique, your style, your delivery needs to match as many members as there are on your team.
0: Okay, I find this intensely interesting, Scott, because I think what I'm hearing you say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm hearing you say that what would have in the past represented great leadership, it used to be the exception, now it has to be the baseline.
1: So well said, so well said, yeah. I mean, in my premise, I'd even go a step further. I think it's fair to say that the majority of leaders and organizations historically, were promoted as individual producers, right? It was the star sales leader or star sales producer. She became the sales leader. The most efficient dental hygienist became the leader of the nine hygienists. The most creative digital designer became the director of the design team. And we know there's no correlation in your ability to be the top salesperson and your ability to be effective sales leader. Absolutely. Arguably inversely correlated. And what happens historically, you know this, Marty, is that you promote the top salesperson to become the sales leader, and they often implode because they don't understand it's not about them. They're in competition with their team. They are an independent producer, and they want to be the star. And by the way, I think as an organization, you want your salespeople to be fe- salespeople to be fiercely independent, be competitive. I want them to be the star. I want them to fight to get to Maui and get the four-foot glass vase. I want. 50 of those people. I don't want them super collaborative. I don't want them, you know, mentoring everybody. Go out there and hit your nut and deliver it and we will take you to Maui and your spouse or partner every year. I hope you earn more than I do. The challenge is we promoted a lot of those people and they implode because they don't take delight And the success of those around them yeah it doesn't mean they're a bad person it means they're a competitive salesperson and their number one professional value is maximize their income or achieve fame or be competitive that's fine and so i think it's super important that organizations be really judicious about the kinds of people that you lure lead into leadership it's not for everybody
0: couldn't agree more couldn't agree more but the natural path to progression and greater status and more money quite often has to go through that path. So it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. But let me just come back to this concept of the need for greater individualization, individual treatment of people. It occurs to me that there's a very, very fine line and a very tricky balance between uh, recognizing the individual differences in people and leading them the way they need to be led and then pandering to them. And I think a lot of leaders who don't have the strength of courage and conviction in leadership and aren't willing to stretch their people could very easily fall into pandering to people individually as opposed to just leading them the most effective way they can as an individual.
1: Um, I appreciate what you say. It's hard for me to relate to, but I think what you say is fundamentally right. I can choose to lower my voice and show a little more patience and still hold you fiercely accountable for your revenue goal this quarter. Of course, yeah. I can choose to walk around and pace in my office in a brainstorm, and that might make some people anxious and others invigorated, but you still are gonna get a high courage conversation from me on your blind spots tomorrow when I discuss the areas of strength and weakness. So I don't personally resonate with what you said, although I know to be fundamentally true. I think that great leadership is communicating to someone in a way that resonates with them. For some people, it might be my loud, charismatic voice that is contagious and exciting and motivating. Sure. And like I said, for others, it might be a very different delivery style that resonates with them. I think one of the best books I ever read was by Julian Treasure. I think he called, it was called like, you know, listen to the listening or he's a he's a famous british listening expert and that's something that's been weighing on me is that i can't have one style for everyone i've got to make sure that i calibrate the way i speak and lead so that it resonates with people of different generations of different backgrounds of different technical competencies of different goals sure same principles right listen more than you speak speak very clearly offer apologies, hold people accountable, be a model of the company values. But, you know, you can treat people differently and still treat people equitably. Of course. You can treat people differently and still people treat, 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 treat people fairly. I guess in many ways I'm saying you may have to be a little bit of a chameleon on the surface to resonate with a different group of people while your, your, your values and the leadership principles you're following are universal.
0: Yeah, and that, that makes so much sense. And that's my experience too. I think the, the thing is the ability to wield the leadership tools judiciously. When you talk about uh, adapting to people's styles and being able to get through to them the way you need to, but by the same token, not letting go of your need to be courageously direct at certain times. And I think a lot of leaders can fall into the, uh, the trap of pandering to people because they don't keep hold of that courageous connection they need to stretch their people and to do the best by them. So I think, I think we're in violent agreement.
1: Beautifully said. Yeah, beautifully said. I think it was Brene Brown that said, you know, clear is kind. One Absolutely. of our co-founders at Dr. Covey, Blaine Lee, said something. that It's the wisest thing I've ever heard, Marty. He said, nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Yeah. So I'd argue that you know one of the most important contributions that leaders make is, is minimizing confusion, setting clear expectations, holding people uber accountable, and showing niceties and kindnesses and respect along the way. But you can be clear and still be kind. You can be firm and still be respectful. It's an art, right? It's not natural for everyone. It's not natural for me. Yeah. I have to think about it and revisit it and offer an apology quite frequently and say that's not what I meant. My intent was this. Yes. It's why I open most high courage conversations with, hey, Marty, I need to have a high courage discussion with you. My intent is not to minimize you or to mollycoddle you or to uh, uh, embarrass you. And I need to have a, a courageous conversation about your performance in this project because it's not acceptable. and needs to change or it can't continue. Yeah, Those can exist in concert right a high level of courage with a high level of diplomacy i think too often we err on either too courageous or too diplomatic and neither of those tends to serve leaders well
0: that's beautifully said scott and i think that's the the art and the subtlety of being a great leader is that thing that you just said so I, I think that's – so let's end the interview. No, I'm only that, kidding. That's
1: just from Stephen Covey, so credit – yeah, yeah there, there was
0: do. a bit of a, yeah. bit of a mic drop moment there. So let me get back to this work ethic piece, right, because uh, you mentioned that those stellar guests on your On Leadership with Scott J. Miller podcast have that in common, that, that really, really incredible um, responsibility-driven work ethic. Now, you are a phenomenally prodigious content producer and that must absorb a huge amount of your time and focus. But you also have beautiful wife, three boys just coming up towards their teen years. Good luck with that, mate. Uh, and, um, and, and how do you actually manage to produce so much content and still keep your most important relationships thriving?
1: Well, I think your, your premise may be flawed. You're assuming I do. <laughs> You're assuming I do. Uh, here's how I would answer that. Uh, I'm a very early riser by choice, not by desire. I wake up at 4 a.m. every morning, and I write, and I read, and I write a column each week. I post on my social. I get those things done before my boys rise. They usually rise around 6 o'clock or so. And so I'm a, a business owner, a writer, a columnist from about 4 to 6, 15. My dad from about six fifteen to about eight twenty when we drop them off at three separate campuses. I then, and a podcast host like you, and an author, and an entrepreneur, and a talent agent, and all that kind of stuff from about eight twenty to about three twenty. Hard driving. I take lunch every day for an hour. It might be a business lunch or it might be just me reading the Wall Street Journal. But I take lunch every day. I usually schedule a meeting over breakfast because I like to eat. <laughs> I'm kind of at a you know, three squares a day. We pick up our boys. I usually am a dad between around 4.30 and 6.30 again. Basketball practice, tennis practice, things like that. Boys do homework. Boys go to bed. I then work for about an hour in the evening. And then I'm in bed at 9.30, lights out, asleep every night, 9.30, no exceptions, always in bed. Right. So I've learned what is my circadian cycle. I know when my peak, my trough, and my recovery is. And I align my most important tasks around that. My peak is 4 a.m., to about 9.30. If you want my, my genius, my creativity, get on my schedule from 4 a.m. until 9.30. I tend to go into a trough around 11 a.m. to about 2. I have a bit of a burst again between 2 and 5. And then I am downhill starting around 5.30 at night. I don't want conflict. I don't watch any dramas on television. I don't watch terrorist attacks or news or I, I can't handle. I've been fighting battles all day long, solving problems. My wife knows. I I, I watch like cartoons at night because I want no dialogue, no conflict.
0: Right. Nice.
1: I know my limitations and I exploit them insanely well.
0: Right. Perfect. Yeah.
1: I I don't have balance during the day. I tend to have seasons of balance. I mentioned I'm going to San tropez on Monday for 10 days. I will not be working. Will I check my email? Of course. It's on my phone. I got four emails. Will I be on social media? Yes. Because... You know i can't compartmentalize that but i'll be not working intently for 10 days we'll be having fun and and i'll get back and i have nine keynotes in a row so i treat life balance as seasons sometimes you're out of balance sometimes you're in balance i don't try to balance my days i tend to try to balance the seasons of my life i work super hard and i play hard jillian michaels the famous author and wellness coach in the u.s said something she said you know you can have everything, you just can't have it at the same time. And I try to live my life around that as much as possible.
0: That's good. That's very, very helpful. I'm sure there's a, a lot of uh, leaders in our community that are going to have that same struggle. So it's really, really useful. But
1: Marty, just to, just to get a fine tune on that, I learned that from Dan Pink. All oh, right. In yeah. one of his recent, his recent book, WHEN, when W H E N, great book. He, I had never heard of this term about your circadian cycle. Where yeah. have I been? But as I studied my peak, my trough, and my recovery, My team is intently putting meetings in the right places. If it has to do with a client pre-consult or a keynote or something intent, oh, it has to happen before 11 a.m. Yeah. And the other administrative things that are important, right? Signing books, sign 2,000 books. Oh, that's happening between 11.30 and 2.30 where I can just be doing things that don't require my best from me. It's probably the best time management technique I've learned is to really understand your peak, your trough, your recovery, and fiercely, to the extent you can, align your schedule and your brain activity around that.
0: Yeah, totally. That's that's great guidance. I I love Dan Pink's book. When I think it's a fantastic book, and I'm very similar to you in that regard. In that, my content, all of that really deep thinking I do, is all morning work. Once I once I get past lunchtime, that's it. I can do a bunch of other stuff, but it's not going to be the deep content work that I need my brain for, and I need to be at my creative best, so that's it. A...
1: Just so you know, you said deep thinking, yeah. I said creativity, because no one's ever accused me of being a deep thinker. <laughs>
0: but, but you are too humble, Mr. Miller. Let me, let me just get no, on I, to I'm talk not, about your- book. I'm not, I'm
1: just self-aware, Marty, I'm not humble. <laughs>
0: let, me, let me talk about your current book, which is being released today, The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. Now, as I said, it's a great read, it's really practical, It exposes the 13 different roles that mentors play and it shows how to incorporate these effectively into a a mentor-mentee relationship. Now, I've got a bunch of questions about this, right? And I'm interested to hear your views on, and I know leaders in our community are gonna be keen to hear this too. For context, why did you write this book and who is it for? Now, I know you said before that you write for yourself, but you obviously are a very smart businessman and you've seen a need in the market. So, so who's this designed for?
1: Well, truth be told, it was Harper Collins that approached me and asked me to write the book. It wasn't like I was sitting at home pondering. So I mean, maybe that's the wrong answer, but you know, I tend to be an authentic guy. So I had about nine books in my pipeline that I'm still going to write, but Harper Collins, who I'd written two books for before, they saw a need in the marketplace. They also saw that I had talked about mentorship quite a bit and I posted about it. And I'd written two books called Master Mentors about guests on my podcast. That really wasn't directly about mentorship. It was a good title indirectly. They called me. They actually wanted me to write a book for mentors and mentees. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, I don't know if I have enough content for a book for mentees, but I'm passionate about mentorship. And so I said, I'll tell you what, I want to write a book that's super practical. The Competitive Landscape had, had several books about mentorship, but they were fairly aspirational. And I wanted to write a very practical book. And so I, I told them, here's what I would write about. And they trusted me. I don't think they thought I had, I, I don't know that they came around to my idea, but they, they decided to support me in it. And I think now they see the wisdom in my practicality. I tend to write very fast, easy, breezy reads. I'm kind of the chicken soul, chicken soul for the leadership soup guy, yeah, right? right. I, I don't try to write Adam Grant, Jim Collins books. It's not who I am. And so this was very practical. Uh, I originally had 15 roles. And when I reviewed them with the, re- with the uh, reading committee, they passed out. And when they came back, they said, Scott, you're the seven habits guy. What part of not having 15 do you not realize? <laughs> exactly. and so I compromised greatly and moved it from 15 to 13. True, but I'm kind of kidding. But I really felt like these were the 13 roles that mentors play at some given point. Not every role is imperative. There's not a, a, a golden sequence to them. One is one for a reason and 13 is 13 for a reason. But the middle ones can kind of move around. And it's really a book around the practicality of mentorship. Say this, don't say that. Consider yeah. this, don't consider yeah. that. And so some might find it rudimentary. And to that I say, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> That's great. But look, i gotta, I got to ask, right? Franklin Covey, four disciplines of execution. I am all about yeah. simplicity and focus in leadership. The simpler you can make something and the more you can yes. help people to focus on the right things that are value creators, the better yet you ended up with 13. So how do you go about that process of deciding? So you've got to make trade-offs between comprehensiveness and simplicity. Yeah. So how, how do you decide? What yeah. process do you go through for that? How did you end up with 13?
1: Uh, so, I, so I'm a very visual writer. So when I write, I write with post-it notes and posters all over my wall and I brainstorm. So for several months before I put pen to paper. I figure out my architecture. This is not a genius way to write. I'm sure many people do this, but I tend to organize thoughts and chapters. I write things up. I have a large peer review committee that I that I dip into. I go to a lot of mentors. I'm thinking about this, thinking about that. So um, I don't know if I'm humble. I'm just self-aware. So I know what I I know what I don't know. I'm fairly oh. consciously incompetent. I know I I you know. I'm willing to get people's feedback a lot. So I collapsed a couple of them, but I'm also maybe a little bit insolent. And I thought, no, 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 I actually want to write about these 13 roles. These are going to be short chapters. It's not like it's, you know, war and peace. And so I tried to keep it very easy and practical and also give permission to the reader. Hey, you're not going to agree with all these roles. You're going to see some similarities. You're going to see some crossover, you know, get over it release it, take what's good, leave what's not helpful. And, and, I, and it's actually getting really good reviews because it's so practical. You know, yeah. I was kind of raised to believe that to be relevant, you kind of have to be uptight and you can't have fun and you can't make jokes. And I just don't believe that. I just think no. you can be, no, you I. can be super relevant and be plain spoken. You can be super competent and still have fun and laugh at yourself. And the book is kind of follows those premises of my own brand.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I was interested though, you made the observation yourself, I think was it, was it um, roll 10 and 11, you said they could have well been collapsed into one. I think it was there, was, there was one where you said, I could have made these one, but I decided to make them two. Marty,
1: so, you're selling me out, bro.
0: <laughs> but it did all make sense, Scott, that's the main thing. So let me just move the conversation slightly along because I think that a lot of people in my experience don't necessarily understand the difference between mentoring and coaching. I don't think the concepts are generally well oh, yeah. un understood. Yeah. So, as yeah. I was reading your book, I thought, well, actually, that's a real um, coaching uh, uh, capability and competence as well. In your experience, what's the main difference between the two and where are the overlaps, if anywhere?
1: Well, again, this is my opinion and it may or may not be popular, but. Um... I'm the guest. So I'm going to share it. <laughs> uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of lap, overlap between mentoring coaching, you know, yeah. typically speaking here, I think are the differences. Coaching is often, a, often a business. Now, yes, leaders are coaching in business, but the coaches that I know have made a business out of this great for them. They have studied, they are certified, they're credentialized. They've been to probably a, an academic sponsored program. There's a pedagogy, an architecture, a philosophy, They take it very seriously. Their their guest is paying for their time in most instances. Yes, there's the role of leader coach and player coach, and that's a different terminology, I think. A a mentor is someone that's usually volunteered or voluntold. (laughs) They've been asked, will you be a mentor in our organization? And so it's usually philanthropic in nature. It's usually kind of ad hoc. So I think the big difference is coaching tends to be a more rigorous certified process and mentorship is usually okay yeah I'll be a mentor but then they get there they're not quite sure how to mentor. Yeah. And so in some ways this was sort of like my certification process for mentors. In fact, I have a certification I'm offering on my website greatmentorship.com. But I think I I also think an important point is to clarify I also think a mentor should not be misconstrued as being your champion or your ally or your sponsor or your supporter. Do not confuse your mentor with those things. They're not your ally. They're not your sponsor. They're not your um, champion in the beginning. Now, if you are a great mentee and you show up on time, you ask smart questions, you take notes, you make and keep commitments, you are voraciously grateful for your mentor's time, maybe your mentee will agree to become your ally or your sponsor or your champion. That's why it's so important to set boundaries as a mentor. There's a lot of similarities in coaching. One of the, one of the differences is I don't think leaders, I don't think that employees should expect their leader to be their mentor. I think that's putting your leader in an in a uncomfortable position. Yes. yes, we have leaders who mentored us, but I believe rarely if ever should your leader also be your mentor.
0: I was just about to ask that question, mate. It's next on my chalkboard because I was going to ask you if it's even possible for your boss to also be your mentor. And my view sure. my view would be sort of, because let's face it.
1: Right, I, I agree with yeah. you. I, I think it's possible. I don't know if it's ideal. No, that's right. Because it, cause, cause then it places your boss your leader in a more difficult situation, because if they're not the courageous type to have an intervention with you or talk straight about your areas of growth, now they're in this sort of, uh, you know, nebulous land of, well, I'm also mentoring them and I'm also leading them. And so, of course, all of us have, in retrospect, leaders who were our mentors. It kind of happened naturally, unconsciously. It happened in hindsight. We didn't formalize it. Mm. But if Marty's my boss, I do not think it is responsible most times to say, hey, Marty, would you mentor me on this? I think the question is, Marty, you already are leading me on this. I, 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 I argue don't place your leader in the uncomfortable situation of asking them to mentor you. I would say maybe use the word coach. Yes, there are some nuances. They're fine. Go find someone else in the organization or in your network to mentor you. Don't put that burden on your boss.
0: Yeah, great, great advice. Great advice. Um, I just want to ask you a couple of things around your leadership philosophy and ethos. How, how would you describe the way you view leadership to the extent you haven't already been able to work it in? Because I guess you know, you've worked with so many leaders over the years. You've seen so much. In, in so many different types and styles of leaders. And of course, across the decades, as you've said, leadership has changed remarkably in the last several years. So how would you describe your leadership philosophy and ethos now?
1: Well, you're asking for my leadership ethos. I told you I'm not a deep thinker. I told you I'm self-aware, but here you go again. <laughs> um, you would think I would have one because I've spent 30 years in the business. Here are some things that I would say. I've already said this before. I do not think everyone should be a leader of people. And that's probably my leadership ethos. I think you should be very, very deliberate about, are you called to leadership? I'll use me as an example. I am a charismatic, strong-willed, execution-oriented leader of people. And because of that, I tend to railroad over people. I'm not as thoughtful around people's feelings. I tend to say things I regret. If you want your career to grow, work for me. If you want to feel good, don't work for me. And so I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people, but like every top salesperson, I was lured with more pay and more influence and more title and budget. So, you know, lead or be led, right? Pick it or be led by someone else. And so I think that's a lot of people's position. Be very thoughtful around, is leadership the right track for you? Work for a company, if it's not, that provides you advancement without leading people. Most organizations don't provide advancement without leading people. So you got to have a really kind of you know, intimate talk with yourself? The reason I, I, I answer it this way is because leadership is a massive responsibility because you have to be the model of everything you want to see in your people. If you want your team to be punctual, you got to be on time everywhere. If you want them to stay on topic, you got to stay on topic. If you want them to stop gossiping, you got to stop gossiping. If you want to hit their, have them hit their quarter, their numbers, you got to hit your numbers. If you want them to be self-aware, you got to be self-aware. If you want them to offer a pol- you get it, right? You have to be a model of everything you want to see in your people, and it's relentless, and it's tireless. And you're going to fall down, and you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to have to acknowledge it and teach through it and be comfortable saying, I screwed up. Everyone, come around. I was rude to Tom. Tom, I owe you an apology. I feel horrible. I'm embarrassed. This is taking a lot of courage to say this. I was wrong. You were right. Please forgive me. I won't do it again. You have to give feedback and accept feedback. You have to do so many things. So my leadership ethos is buy or beware. <laughs> you know, make sure that you are entering into this role eyes wide open. Here's what I would say. If Marty is my leader and he's encouraging me to become a leader or Mar- Marty is the chief human resource officer and Marty comes to me and says, Scott, we have a leadership opening. We want you to um, be the next leader. Here's what you should be asking. I want to know the job intimately. I want to shadow. I want to really understand is this the right role for me? Tell me which of my current strengths will suit me well in that job and which of my current strengths will I have to cease doing overnight. Yeah. Like literally what got me here will not keep me there. So I need you to tell me what things will I need to stop doing that I have learned are my key talents? In addition to that, what exact skills and competencies do I lack that I'm going to have to learn short, mid and long term to be successful in this job? But I want to know upfront, brutally honest, what do I have and what do I don't have so I can make a determination of, is this the right journey for me? Do I want to put the time and effort into this? Because most people won't tell you this absolutely because they they need to fill the position yeah totally Now they also want you to thrive in it they want you to last in it but you've got to kind of guard yourself you've got to protect yourself against the appeal of being in charge and being the leader because at the end of the day the leader is in charge now yes you have to achieve results with and through other people that's what leaders do leaders achieve results with and through other people but to answer your question really precisely Leaders are in the relationship business. That is your core competency. Can you develop mutually trustworthy relationships? Are you easy to approach? Do you re- can you accept bad news? Can you mentor? Can you coach? Can you provide high courage feedback? Can you have high courage conversations while still leaving people intact? It's not for everybody.
0: Oh, no. Absolutely not. That's a a fantastic answer. And uh, once again, you've dropped the mic. So I think from here, I just want to thank you so much for being part of No Bullshit Leadership. I've really appreciated, particularly your generosity and openness, which isn't common. So thank you very much for that. Where can our listeners go to explore more from Scott J. Miller?
1: Well, to your podcast, because it's one of the best out there. So continue to listen to Marty's podcast. And if you haven't, read the book. I mean, can I say this? Yeah, of bullshit. course I can say it. No bullshit leadership. I mean, read this book. It's, 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 it's like a manual, right? A manual. If I'm not mistaken, you're coming on to the On Leadership podcast in the not-so-distant future. Looking forward to that. To answer your question, the book has a dedicated website, greatmentorship.com. You can visit scottjeffreymiller.com. My books are sold in all major outlets. You can find me on every social media platform, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook. My wife says I'm hard not to find, and that wasn't a compliment from her.
0: (laughs) Scott, thank you so much, mate. What a great conversation. Thank you very, very, very much for joining us. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you on yours.
1: Thank you so much, Marty. Great interview.
0: All right. So that brings us to the end of episode 254. I really hope you enjoyed this rare no-bullshit leadership interview. It's a little change of pace for us, but I'm sure you'll agree that it was absolutely worth our while to tap into Scott's wisdom. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please make sure you subscribe to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast on your favourite player. I look forward to next week's episode, Building a Better Mouse Trap. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader.